Let us join our hearts in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the gift of your holy word by which you have prophesied of the great birth of our Lord Jesus, the Savior. And we also thank you that through that word, your Holy Spirit continues to work in our hearts, producing true faith in this Savior. Once again, draw us to his manger tonight in true faith and give us comfort and reassurance by your sacred word. We ask it all in our Lord's saving name. Amen. Dear fellow redeemed who have been purchased and bought back to God by the suffering death and resurrection of his only son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God's grace, kindness, and compassion are yours to be found alone in that Redeemer. Amen. While he was in his 20s, he was kicked out of medicine school and he immediately began slandering many of his doctors. And having been ousted by the medical community, he turned to the occult. And he decided to try and be a prophet. And he began writing almanacs for each of the upcoming years, starting in 1550. His name that we know him by today, a name that he took, was Nostradamus. He lived in France. And he published a book of over 6,000 supposed prophecies in 1555. And most of them deal with major disasters that might someday occur. The language that he often used in his prophecies were, was, so, was so bendable and twistyable and, and kind of obscure that it was very easy for people after events happened to look back at them and read things into them. People call this retroactive clairvoyance that after an event happens, you now can see through that event back to some words someone wrote hundreds of years ago. And his followers that still love his work today see him as having predicted some of these things, the London fire, the French Revolution, the rise of Napoleon, the rise of Adolf Hitler, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the atomic bomb, and even 9-11. Now, if you had been before those events and read some of the passages attributed to him for these prophecies, it would have been very impossible for you to have actually predicted these things. But this retroactive clairvoyance is something that often happens with people that claim to have this gift. We're very fascinated by projections and predictions and prophecies of things into the future. And that's just the nature of human beings in this fallen, sinful world. Uh, there's something inside of us that longs to know the future and that, that, that wants to figure things out, whether it's in our own lives or for our country or our children or, or whatever. The ancient people, uh, way back in the Old Testament, are cutting up animals and slicing open their organs and looking at them to try and predict the future. There are, are uh, stories of people that try to follow the patterns of birds to see if they can predict what's going to happen. And uh, I had a gentleman come to me in my office when I was a pastor once, and he said, I used to live in a house that had all of these birds that would fill the trees, and now I built a new house in another part of, time, of town, and I also have large amounts of birds in the trees near my new house. Is God trying to tell me something about the future? Is he trying to predict something for me in the future? The problem with the future for us is because we don't know what it's, what's going to happen and because there can be so many things that can go wrong 
in particular our death. There's a fear of it. And so we, we are tempted to think if I knew more about it, I maybe could figure out how to get ready for that better or maybe avoid certain things. As Christianity begins to diminish in our culture and society, there's going to be a greater rise in interest in things like this, a greater rise in practices that will try to predict and prophesy the future beyond what God tells us in his holy word. People have noticed that out in the Pacific Northwest, where there is less Christianity and less worship going on, that many of these types of things and stores and magazines and stuff, it's much bigger, it's much more magnified. And that's going to begin to happen probably around our country. We need to, need to make sure to really teach our children the second commandment. Biblical prophecy, on the other hand, has certain characteristics to it that are notably different from all of this. Let's just take consideration of some of them tonight. First of all, the prophet was not self-proclaimed. The prophet was selected by God. This wasn't a profession that you would choose for yourself. In fact, we have many instances in Scripture where somebody was in the role of a prophet who really did not want it. Moses, for one believed he didn't have the ability to speak very well. Isaiah, in his calling, likewise, is reluctant at first. And God has to tell him, you go and tell my people. We think of Jeremiah, who was probably only a teenager at the time, and he says back to God when his call comes, I'm only a child. You can't expect me to do this, in other words. Jonah was so reluctant, he got on a boat and tried to flee and get away from where he was supposed to be sent. So that's something to note, first of all, that the prophet was selected by God. It wasn't a self-chosen profession. And in Scripture, God always dates when the prophecy takes place. You'll frequently hear, in the year of King so-and-so, in the year of so-and-so. And that's true both in the Old and New Testaments. When John the Baptist, the great final prophet before the Messiah, when he shows up on the scene, Luke likewise writes, in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar when Pontius Pilate was ruling and so on. God always puts down exactly where you are in time when the prophecy takes place. Likewise, they were fixed to time and circumstances of the people that were going to be involved in these prophecies. The name of the prophet is always provided by God. It's not some obscure, obscure individual. And the role of the prophet was always to speak something, and his prophecy is 100% accurate. Unlike Nostradamus, who some claim, looking back at what he said, that maybe about 30% of what he said seems to have happened, that's not the way it is with a true prophet of God. Because God himself controls the future. And he himself, when he states something, is simply telling us what his plan is for his actions inside of history. And so the role of the prophet was very simple. It was just to transmit accurately what God had asked them to say and to do. And not to alter it, not to add anything to it, not to subtract anything from it. Sometimes the prophecy even hurt the prophet himself. Sometimes it hurt himself the prophecy that was coming. 
but he was not permitted by God to give any interpretation or twist or bent to the prophecy. There's a great passage in, in uh, Peter's, one of Peter's letters, and I just want to read it for you. Think in terms of prophets with this. Concerning this salvation, in other words, the whole plan of Christ and how this worked out for us to get to heaven. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, that's a great line, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. They were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of these things. Now that's a great passage the, that the prophet realized he was being used by God to write down all these wonderful truths that we know and believe about Christ, all of these great prophecies. He, was, he went back and searched the very words that God used him to write to try and understand how he had been used, kind of like a secretary for God. That's such a wonderful thing. And he says that he did this not to serve themselves, but you. So the whole plan of, of God's salvation and the whole work of laying it out in the scriptures and prophesying all of this had to do with you. Had to do with giving you comfort and strength and bringing you to a knowledge of the Savior so that someday you could come to heaven. Notice the consistent accuracy that we have in scripture of God's prophecies. Matthew lists off 80 of them out of the Old Testament. 80. 80 prophecies in 28 chapters. And quite often there are very specific details that are mentioned. People, locations, and circumstances. Now a lot of modern skeptical scholars are often puzzled by this. And they try to discredit the prophetic books of the, of the Old Testament by saying they were written after the time of something that the prophet predicted. But it's interesting how frequently it has happened that discoveries of ancient manuscripts have shown that actually this is what the words were well before the, the event was ever talked about or ever took place. So the prophecies that have been provided by God are true and fixed because when God the Holy Spirit states something, it's not simply a hope or a prediction or a guess, but that very word carries with it the weight to determine history and to lay out things exactly how things should go. The prophecy actually embodies with it then the very power of God, the efficacious nature of God's own word by which he controls all destiny and all human history. He works out and follows his own plan, if you will. God lays out the blueprint of history and then works it out according to the plan for our salvation. And this all has to do with delivering Christ not only into the world to do his work for us, but also now for us who live after Christ to know of him and ultimately go to heaven. The Gospel of Matthew, as I said, quotes 80 prophecies. Nine of them are directly from the book of Isaiah. The epistle to the Romans, which is sometimes called the, the queen of the epistles, Paul quotes Isaiah 19 times. If you just look through the New Testament books and start thinking of all the prophecies, they're usually down on the bottom of your page. Uh, it's amazing how much the New Testament is always based upon all of that. 
It's interesting that during Jesus' ministry, there were times when he attacked the false teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But you will never hear Jesus criticize their beliefs in the scriptures. You will never hear him criticize their beliefs in the prophetic words of the Old Testament. That always goes unchallenged when Jesus is speaking with them. Now think about Mary. As we're going to know and see again in a few minutes as we sing the Magnificat, Mary is very, very well versed in the ancient scriptures. And I think about the prophecies that she knew and had heard about the coming Savior. And what an amazing thing now to think that in her life, all of this blueprint print and plan for the work of Christ was now going to come through her womb in order to provide salvation for the entire world. So what prophecies has God given to you in his word? What declarations of future events has God laid out for you in his word? That on judgment day, your sins are all wiped away, even as they are now, and that because of the righteousness of Christ, he will see you as holy on that great day? That you will not even face any judgment from him? That he's going to welcome you and invite you into heaven as a believer in Christ? Has he promised you, because I live, you will live also? Think how comforting it is that God holds himself to the decrees and prophecies that he has made. Not just about bringing Christ into the world, but bringing Christ to you and all that it's going to mean for you and for your future. So take him at his word. Let your faith be stirred up to boldly grab his prophetic promises to you and know with absolute certainty that he will not let you down. As Moses once said, God is not a man that he should lie. So the Lord invites you, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding. Amen.